Welcome to the Now You Know Akron podcast, brought to you by the journalists of BeaconJournal.com. Each week, they will share their expertise on Akron and Summit County. Now, here's your host, Craig Webb. Thanks for joining us for the Now You Know Akron podcast. I'm your host, Craig Webb. Our spotlight topic today is, well, we're going to go watch some television. Well, at least we'll listen to some television. Our reporter, Carrie Clausen, had a sit down with Copley native Carrie Coons, who's been working on a show for HBO called The Gilded Age. She'll talk about the series along with what's up in her life since she's left Copley. But first, here's three headlines on things you should know on BeaconJournal.com. Where have all the people gone? Our reporter Doug Livingston took a look at how COVID-19 has left downtown Akron still without many workers. An estimate found that anywhere from 5 to 50% of workers are still away from their office as they work remotely amid the pandemic. He talked to city leaders and also civic leaders and business leaders about how they're going to revitalize downtown and whether some of these workers will ever return to their offices. And speaking of the economics of our region, Northeast Ohio is in the running and putting together all it needs to seek a $75 million grant to help with polymer jobs in the region, which certainly would be in and around Akron as a polymer industry is here in our rubber city. Stop if you heard this story before. It seems that Ohio lawmakers once again are looking at whether or not to make daylight savings time a permanent thing in the state. As you know, we just recently turned our clocks back and lost our hour of sleep. This bill would give us our hour of sleep forever. For those of you who didn't turn your clocks back, well, you're running behind. BeaconJournal.com and all our apps always feature headlines and subscriber-exclusive content like these stories and many more that you simply cannot find anywhere else. Thanks for your time. Hi. <laughs> My pleasure. Thanks for all the last-minute, you know, organization. <laughs> yeah, that's that Thanks. Um, yeah. So you're calling from Los Angeles? No, heck no. I'm in Boston. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah, I live in Chicago, uh-huh. and I, I'm working in Boston on the Boston Strangler. Mm. Okay. Um, is that a TV show? I have to... Uh, it's that. a movie with Kira Knightley, um, directed by Matt Ruskin about the two journalists that, two female journalists that were making some connections in the case of the Boston Strangler and the articles they wrote eventually brought about the formation of the Strangler Bureau, which collated all the information from the police departments and helped helped really solve the case as much as it's been solved. <laughs> so kind of a mystery. But. How long have you been working on that project? Oh boy, you know, we started, they started in December I was doing Bug at Steppenwolf in Chicago, so they let me come into the project in January, and we had a brief COVID shutdown. Mm. So I was supposed to start, and then I didn't, and now we're finishing up uh, around the last week of February. Great. And what kind of character do you play? I play uh, Jean Cole, who was a real-life person, though there are some liberties taken with the character, but she was one of the journalists working at the Boston Record at the time, and she was an investigative journalist who would go undercover. For example, she was known for and won some awards for her work undercover in nursing homes to expose uh, malpractice and abusive behaviors, and she... and. 
uh, Loretta McLaughlin, who's played by Keira Knightley, eventually were assigned to cover the Strangler stories at Loretta's behest. She she asked her editor for the opportunity, and they they wrote 29 articles over the course of the the series of murders in the 1960s, starting in 1962, I believe, and um, and yeah, they were just um, uh, really influential in in helping to raise the alarm for women around Boston about what what a dangerous. <laughs> that a dangerous killer was on the loose and they needed to take care of themselves more than they usually did wow. <laughs> because women are always in danger. Wow. And uh, the men in charge of these organizations weren't exactly, weren't working hard enough <laughs> in their view to, um, to, find, to, you know, to find this person who was murdering women. Yeah. Well, of course, I have a lot of questions for you about <laughs> the Gilded Age. And uh, I wondered... Um, First of all, like, how long ago did you film it? Oh, gosh. Well, we, we were one of the first productions back in the middle of the pandemic. So it was September. Mm-hmm. So the pandemic started in March. The, the Broadway shutdown was in March. Mm-hmm. And as you know, we poached all of the actors from Broadway after that. <laughs> so uh, we started shooting that fall. Are you, are you talking and about 2020 it, or 2021? I guess I am. Yes. Wow. Oh, yes. Like Is that true? That's true. September of 2020, huh? Wait, maybe it was 2021. When was my child born? Yeah. Uh, it was 2021. Apologies. Fall of 2021. Okay. They had started right before. They were about to start shooting. The pandemic shut everything down. Yeah. I joined the project during the pandemic. I was not originally cast in the part. And then we began shooting in the fall of 2021. And I got pregnant. Oh. <laughs> winter of 2021 and I had my baby <laughs> July you, you must have had your baby in July of 2021 right? July 2020. Oh, because it's 2022 now? Yeah, I, I have a hard time telling you that. This is what the Wonderful. 
Wow, you are one busy woman. Um, I bet. Correct. Yes, that's correct. Well, yeah, my son is four. Your little boy um, is four, and I know I've seen his name before. What is his name? His name is Haskell. I can only imagine how busy, busy that is with the, such little kids. Yep. Yeah, especially because my husband's career hasn't exactly slowed down. <laughs> I wanted to know: Did you do Bug two two years in a row? Was the first was the was the second was the first time? Um, was it remote? Or was it was we lost our last week. We lost our last week of the live production with the pandemic. So that was our final week in Chicago when Chicago shut down, which was a few. I think it was right before right after my husband came home from Broadway. So it was not long after the Broadway shut down. Actually, Broadway, my husband got home March 13th, which was Haskell's birthday, second birthday. And then we, I think we shut down Chicago like a week or so later. So we lost our last week of the production. And then we returned in November of this year to finish out a live production. And we did a four-week run of the show after a brief brush-up rehearsal. And it was the first production back in our space at Steppenwolf, where we have actually, it's not, it didn't open the new space, but we are we're opening a new space this year that we managed to build during the pandemic. All right. Well, I want to get into a lot of the themes and just and really interesting things about the Gilded Age. And um, did you do most of the filming in New York? Was all of it filmed in New York? We have two studios. We have one in Queens and one in Long Island. So the Russell House is in Long Island, and the Van Ryan House is in Queens. So oftentimes what would happen is one of the families would be shooting for five or six weeks, and the other family would be more or less off. And then, of course, we did time up in um, Troy, New York, where we built a, a town square and where the lighting ceremony happened and the department store set was there. And then we also shot up in Newport, a little bit in Albany, Oh, um, those were our primary location. Okay. Mm -hmm. We had two, I think we had two different stints in Newport. And you said in Troy that there was a department store, a town square? Yeah, we sort of shot the, the, the big Edison lighting ceremony. They, they transformed one of the existing squares in Troy to make it, return it sort of its period glory. And we shot that lighting sequence that's coming up. Um, I don't know. If, I don't know what HBO's. I don't know if that's a spoiler, so we should check on that with Amanda. Okay, I'll be careful. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know that um, we've gotten through episode four out of nine, and am I correct that it um, the show has been picked up for another season? That's correct. As of Monday, they announced our second season. Wow! And when will that start? The filming. Uh, we should start sometime this spring, either maybe end of April or early May. We don't have an official date. Are you looking forward to that? I am because I I really do love the cast so much. They're all theater people. There's a real ensemble ethos among them because of that. And I adore Morgan and Thaisa and Harry who play my family. And we just had it was just a very pleasant set to be on. I think our crew was really well cared for and happy to be there and we're just all looking forward to seeing each other again. Everybody is so intrigued by Bertha, and I wanted to talk about her, of course. <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, I wanted to know if you believe if you saw her as a juicy role, like when you first you know, were presented with the opportunity. What did you think about Bertha? I mean, I think she's really juicy. Do you think she's a juicy role? Yes. Yes. To me, she was in some ways the best role in the series because she is driving so much of the action. I mean, I really appreciate her. I appreciated her ambition. I appreciated that she was single-minded. That that's a flaw that I can relate to in some ways. Mm. And 
she's um, she's the one forcing change. And, and I knew that she was also based loosely on Alva Vanderbilt, who had a most extraordinary and interesting life, not without conflict and complication. And I knew that that presented a lot of possibilities for where her story could go, and it just was really intriguing to me. I read they had talked about her um, being loosely based on Alva Vanderbilt, um, and I uh -huh. wondered um, what you talk about that presenting a lot of possibilities. Did you have like ideas in mind about sort of some similarities between them? I wondered like what you, how you approached that. Well, there was a document that Julian generated about where he foresaw Bertha's story going, and not to you know assume that the story will take the shape that he anticipated from the beginning, from the inception of the series. But, you know, Alva was equally excluded from society, had to really force her way in. The, the Vanderbilts were newly moneyed uh, entrepreneurs, and she was r really determined to make good marriages for her children. And she ended up marrying her daughter, Consuelo, off to one of the, to a count in, in the UK, who was um, a distant relative of Churchill and uh, ultimately Princess Diana, the Spencer family, who occupied Blenheim Castle, and a lot of those families at the time were bankrupt. These landed gentry, they had they had lost their fortunes over time, and they were relying on marrying their children off to these newly moneyed heirs in the United States to shore up their family's position. And so Alva took advantage of that and married Consuelo off uh, unhappily. And also thwarted her, her actual true love. And, and then eventually, she herself was divorced and remarried, which at the time was unheard of. Yeah, and, and then later in her life, she became a suffragette. Yeah. So her, she had a kind of a dawning feminism, as it were, um, as she kind of, as, as she moved through the centuries and the world was changing exponentially around her. I mean, she really kept up with it in a way that was extraordinary. And again, not without complications, of course. We know that that suffragette movement was white, excluded women of color. Um, we know that the ambitions of people like Alva were limited to the social sphere, but that doesn't mean that poor women and, and women of color weren't always in the workforce, you know. So certainly the spotlight is limited when you look at somebody like Alva, but I think the narrative possibilities in a show like The Gilded Age are really, really fascinating. I'd read uh, um, part of an interview from The Guardian where you were talking about, as an actress, that you know, your husband, Tracy Letts, says you have ice, ice water in your veins. As far as yeah, not getting nervous, but I wondered, I'm just taking that idea of ice water in the veins, and I wondered if you see a lot of that in Bertha. <laughs> Certainly, yes. I mean, she does, like I say, she sort of, she has a ruthlessness about her. And I, and I, I admire in her that, that she, in another time, might have been a senator or an entrepreneur in her own right. Yeah. But she is limited in, in where she can put her energy. And when when a woman has intelligence and and energy like that and is not allowed to use it to her satisfaction, that's a really stifling way to move through the world. And so many women, I think, were stifled. I think their spirits were crushed by the weight of society and that they, the only way they could take care of themselves in a way that was socially acceptable was to make a good marriage. And if you didn't have anything to bring to a marriage, the possibility of making a good marriage was pretty limited. And then you have, you know, women like Ada, who's, you know, Agnes, mar made a, Agnes married a man who was what we understand to be potentially abusive but had some money, and she ended up taking care of her sister. Her sister, who had no money to bring to any relationship, 
whose father wouldn't approve of marriage for her, and so she ends up a spinster, mm-hmm. right? It's just there were so many there were so many limitations on women, and I just I I, I think Alva I think um, Bertha represents the kind of women we see in the world today who are CEOs and who are senators and who are running for president, and she would have been a woman like that if she was born in another time. And so that requires a level of shrewdness, mm-hmm. and we don't judge that shrewdness in men. We say, oh, what a savvy businessman, we, you know, when they make a decision that seems ruthless. Well, they were doing the best thing for the company, and women are not afforded the same. Uh, they're still expected to, even now, curry favor with their femininity and, and some sweetness. And if a woman uh, traffics in what we think of as masculine tropes, she's judged for it. And that hasn't changed. I just look at the way the women treat each other in the show, and this is so much a show about women. I mean, the women are, run, like, even though they don't have the power that they're running this story about how they treat each other, and I wanted to know if, if you think it says about just how cruel women were to each other in that time period when we're talking about old money versus new money. Well, the, their power was in the social sphere, and that was a really, I don't, wanna, I don't want to um, um, dismiss the impact of what those women were doing. I mean, jockeying for social position as an occupation was really important. Those those rules, those mores, those invitations were designed to exclude. They were designed to catch people out who didn't belong. And so it was a, it took a really savvy person to figure out how to navigate all of those rules. So these women were really smart and working really hard to make sure their families, like their, their children, would be well-positioned moving forward. And so... So in some ways they did have a lot of power because like George and Mar- like George and Bertha, the, the, George is, George cannot rise to the level without Bertha working on the parallel track of their, their social, um, of her social preoccupations. Mm-hmm. They have to have both things in order to be successful in that society. And so in some ways their powers are equal. I mean, not, not truly equal if you're thinking of it in terms of economics, but, but they're sort of equal powers, and eventually they start to intersect and conflict, and that's sort of where you get some of the tension in the show. And I, I just think that um, it hasn't changed very much, has it? I mean, women have always been pitted against each other mm. in that there's only room for a certain number of them in any room. <laughs> and I think back to my days on the playground. I remember a day when I watched, because I was a bit of a, I was a bit of a strange strange kid, and I sort of sat outside of things anyway, and I remember watching a scenario play out where this leader, uh, a young girl, was leading a group of other girls, and she made a decision to exclude another girl, and, and I watched them all turn their backs on her, and I thought, well, why, why do we do this? Why is she doing this? And why, why are we participating in it? And I didn't understand why it was happening. And yet, you know, now from, with some perspective, we know the social pressures on women and, and the way that divide and conquer operates, even in the feminist movement. Yeah. And, um, but of course, I didn't know those things when I was in fourth grade. You just see pain and loneliness and um, this was in Copley, exclusion. And, yes, it was in Copley, sure. I mean, like any, on any playground. Yeah. Um, And bullying, and, you know, I observed all that kind of behavior. Um, And I had my own relationship to my, the the pressures that I felt to fit in or rise to the top or be inclusive or, you know, it's just, 
I don't know. It, it hasn't really changed that much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just that they were operating at a level where, you know, businesses could rise and fall based on <laughs> based on what who was included. Um, maybe the stakes don't feel as high when you're on the playground, but personally they do. And I think Julian Fellows is really good about making sure that the inner lives of those characters are also accessible to us as a viewer. And so we realize often what the personal stakes are, even if we don't understand why the social rules are set up the way that they are. Absolutely. That's what makes it so fascinating. Um, well, I wondered um, about, maybe you talked about the marriage you know, how that, that the, you know, as husband and wife, they had to complement each other in order for both you know, the family to succeed socially and in, in business. And I wondered if um, you see uh, the Russell's marriage as, I mean, a strong marriage or a good marriage or like what you think about it. Well, one of the things I loved about the script when I first read it was that their marriage struck me as shockingly egalitarian, mm-hmm. especially for the time in which the show takes place. I had a good model for that. I think of my parents as having a very egalitarian marriage at a time when I think women were still relegated to traditional roles. I mean, my mother, like most women who who were coming up when she did, uh, she could be a teacher or a nurse or a housewife. And my mom was a nurse. And my dad, though he went off to seminary, uh, ended up coming back and taking over the family business. And my family's been in the same town since the 1880s, you know. Wow. <laughs> so in know. some ways it was, they, they met when they were in fourth grade. You know, my great-great-grandfather was a volunteer fireman at Copley. And they rented, his family rented the farm where my parents live now. So my, my family's, both sides of the family were sort of deeply entrenched in this small town. Uh, and yet, you know, my, my mom always made more money than my dad. My dad was very much a part of child raising. They had five kids. He cooked. He cleaned. He took care of us on the weekend. I mean, they had a really, they had a partnership. And they're still married. And they still live there. That's how they grew up. And so I, oh, yes, yes, yes. They're, they're still in Copley, yeah. We're, we're kind of in the Barberton Norton side of things. But, but really, it's, you know, Barberton Norton address, but we're considered Copley. And is it a farm, you said? It's not a working farm. It's it's the original farmhouse burnt down, but my parents still live in the farmhouse that was rebuilt in the I think the fifties or sixties. And we have five acres. We have an old barn, you know, a, a little cow pond, that sort of thing. Wow, All the orchards are dead now, but it was wonderful. It was a wonderful way to grow up. I, I loved growing up there. Well, Go I wondered if you get back to Copley very often. Did you say it was, I'm sorry? Did you say it was your great grandfather who was a volunteer fireman? Yes, my great grandfather was. He ended up being the fire chief, actually. Okay. Um, and he and I had my great grandfather Elmer was the police chief. Elmer Kuhn was was the uh, police and fire chief. I mean, he they were. And my, you know, the auto parts store that my dad ran with his father was actually originally my great uncle's grocery store from the you know turn of the century, and it was in that original building. So we've Does he still been there a long time. Uh, no, no. My my dad um, ended up. My grandfather, though he ostensibly retired, continued to work until he was almost ninety. And my father ended up selling the business when I was in graduate school and kind of getting out of that. Okay. Because um, it was getting tough. The market was getting tough for auto parts. Okay. <laughs> so, but it's still there. And my grandfather continued to work and cover shifts even after we sold it. I wanted to ask two more. Like you mentioned. Um, Two more questions. I wondered how if you get back to Copley mm-hmm. very often to visit. Yes, my whole family's still there. I have three grandparents in their 90s and four siblings all living in that area. And um, I did want to 
ask about just the sheer opulence of the wonderful costume you get to wear. And I saw the special um, material you did just walking through the Russell Mansion and talking about the mm -hmm. amazing set. And I wondered if you would mind commenting on just the wonderful costumes and sets. Well, the production design is extraordinary. It's one of the largest shows I've ever worked on by far. And the first time I walked into the foyer with the set of the Russell House in the studio, I mean, it felt like walking into Grand Central Station, wow. the architecture I mean, the soaring ceilings and, and the, uh, like you pointed out, the level of detail. There's, you know, there's the actual, they, they reprinted some of those silk fabrics for the wallpaper that were original designs from that time period. And, um, our production designer, Bob Shaw, is just an extraordinary artist. And then Kasha Wallaka Mamon and her team did extensive research into the period. And everything that you see that Bertha is wearing, though she's, she's a little bit outside of the period, very intentionally to signal that she's forward thinking, it's all rooted in their research. Mm -hmm. And so for any detail that you see, Kasha has some sort of reference photo to prove that, that in fact these kinds of embellishments and colors existed back then. And it was always fascinating to go to a fitting and hear them debating those details because they were all so knowledgeable about the time period. And so they'd say, well, can we get away with a little wisp of the sleeve or does she have to have a full sleeve? Because it would have been scandalous. I mean, there were so many. So they have to have such a breadth of knowledge in order to make those decisions. It was always so fascinating to me to be privy to those conversations. And as an actor, all of those elements are so supportive. It, once you put on those costumes and you walk into those rooms, you realize just how much size and truthfulness you have to provide in order to fill those spaces. I mean, it's a real invitation to the heightened quality of the language and to the world that we're moving through. And honestly, it's just, it feels like three quarters of your work is done for you. And that I've said this before, but then all you can do is walk in there and screw it up oh, because they've all, they've all prepared the way That's so beautifully. Funny. Well, I appreciate it. Uh, that's just really, really interesting. And I appreciate your time and all the insight. My pleasure. My grandfather will be very excited to see the article crop up in the newspaper. This is the one that she's got the three grandparents in their nineties, huh? That's wonderful. Yeah, they're all they're all there. And they're kind of, they're extraordinary. Truly extraordinary. Well thank you so much. Um, thanks again for your time. My pleasure. We can talk again sometime, I'm sure. Thanks. That's all we have today for the Now You Know Akron podcast. Be sure to join us again. Next week, we do these headlines and also stories of fascinating topics of the region every Wednesday or so, wherever you download your favorite podcasts. And they're also available on BeaconJournal.com and our various apps. Before we go, I have to thank our producer, BJ Lisko, and wish him well as he moves on to other endeavors here at Gannett. And we thank him for all his hard work and making us sound like we, we make sense most weeks. He you know, does a pretty good job. And we urge you to support local journalism by becoming a subscriber. If you've already signed up, you have our heartfelt thanks. Until next week, now you know Akron.